William sat down with his wife Paige on a quiet Tuesday evening. She had taken care of dinner for the evening and prepared a chicken piccata, his favorite. His day had been long and he was quite tired, but the comfort of a home-cooked meal and knowing that someone thought of him felt good. Thanks for cooking tonight, William said. His wife broached their plans for the weekend, saying how she'd like to take the family out for a hike. William checks in with himself and the idea of making any plans already feels overwhelming to him. He's thinking about how behind he is at work and how he didn't have anything to say the last time they went on a hike and what a fiasco that was. He also knows that it will hurt her feelings if he doesn't want to go. Sure, sounds fun. He's able to muster out, looking away as quickly as he can as to not give himself away. Paige glares back at him. We don't have to go if you don't want to, she says. William decides to double down. No, I want to go. But he's trying to convince both of them and he knows that he's not pulling it off. Okay, great, Paige says with some sarcasm. Ugh, the tension is beginning to build. William is frustrated because he doesn't want to deal with this right now. She knows I don't like conflict like this, but she doesn't care. Everything has to turn into a fight. I said I would go, he says, showing his frustration. Yeah, but you don't want to go, Paige retorts back. She launches into a tirade about the last time they tried to go on a hike and he didn't want to, but William is already gone. He's too overwhelmed from the day, the thought of having to make plans, and doesn't have it in him to engage in this fight. Why can't we just have a quiet dinner in peace? I never seem to be able to catch a break. All right, we're all probably familiar with this story to some degree. Maybe not the exact content, but at least the process with it. But here's the question. Are you a William or are you a Paige? Welcome to Relatable, a Thrive Therapy podcast. My name is Lauren Mokeri, and I am joined by my friends and co-hosts, Coulter Bloxham and Kayla Gensler. We are three licensed professional counselors running a therapy community in Phoenix, Arizona called Thrive. At Thrive, we offer individual therapy, tons of group therapy, workshops, intensives, and so much more. And this podcast is just an extension of all of that, where we go through topics on how to relate better to others, how to relate better to yourself, better to your anxiety, emotions, experiences, and so on. And our topic for today is on ways that we show up in relationships, specifically emphasizing this terminology that we use of pursuers and withdrawers. So even just listening to that vignette, um, it was very clear to me which was the pursuer and which was the withdrawer. Um, but I'm going to throw this to you, Kayla, just to kind of reflect a little bit on what it was like listening to that and then give us a little info on what this language means. I think as my time has gone just studying and practicing attachment theory, I have grown so much more empathy for the withdrawer. And as I'm listening to that vignette and listening to poor William, I guess that's the first thing that comes up for me is like, oh man, he just like doesn't know what to say and he doesn't know what to do. And he's like feeling overwhelmed. Like, how do I do this with my wife? And I just, I think the first thing that comes up for me is just like empathy and compassion. Mm, look at all that growth that you've done. <laughs> I'm telling you, I don't know that Dustin would say that that is accurate, but <laughs> right now in the stable mind that I'm in, <laughs> I feel compassion. Like, wow, I get it now. I understand it. <laughs> yeah, I'm interested to know what people think of William and Paige. Like, you know, are they like, oh, she's rude or something or like, you know, 
just empathizing with him. I will say, I'm just going to give a little spoiler. Next week, we're going to be talking more about The Pursuer, and we will hear Paige's perspective Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. on this story. Yeah. Yeah, we had an opportunity ahead of time to kind of hear both of the vignettes, and there was a part of me that was like, oh, man, I wish we could even play them together because it is so interesting hearing the other perspective of it. So definitely stay tuned for next week. Come back and hear that other side. I just want to add one other thing that, It is hailing here in Phoenix, Arizona today, which is a very rare thing. And so if you hear some, you know, background noise or something, that might be why. It's kind of rainy and haily and which is nice. Like we enjoy that in Phoenix for like the four days a year that it rains. Uh I'm loving it so much. Okay. So we're already starting to use this language a little bit. And Kayla, you're kind of our attachment theory expert here. So I want to have you give us a little bit more definition of these terms withdrawer and pursuer so our listeners know what we're talking about. Yeah. I think that the important thing to start with is what it, attachment theory is really trying to help us understand and with these terms. And so attachment theory, just a like quick summary, is an evolutionary system or drive within all of us. And the primary job of that system is to help us with connection, right? So as humans, we want to connect to other people and it's evolutionary because it's helped us to, to survive as a species. So this system, again, it's thriving on connection. And in order to connect, we need to experience our emotions. We need to learn how to bond and to communicate. And so those are all sort of like mechanisms or factors that are involved with this attachment system. When we talk about pursuers and withdrawers, what we're talking about is the way that we've learned to self-protect when our attachment system or our ability to connect is being threatened. So both of these ways are really just how we're trying to protect ourselves in the relationship. Exactly. I want to name too, as you were just describing that attachment system and drive within us, that it's really important for all of us to understand we have two really strong, basically survival drives, right? So one of them is the drive for our own individual survival. So our own individual safety and sense of security and stability And when that gets threatened, right, like I often use this metaphor, if a bear is chasing us or if somebody's attacking me or I feel like somebody's about to criticize or misunderstand me, that need for individual protection, that's one drive. And then we have this interdependent drive, which is the attachment system you're talking about, Kayla, this need for connection. And it's actually the same part of our brain that lights up when either of these needs are threatened, either the the individual sense of safety and security, when that's threatened, that part of our brain lights up like, oh, there's danger and we're likely to move into protection. And when our ability to connect with others is threatened, that also lights up. So we're kind of talking about both of these drives and how when we get triggered or there's some threat to either of those basic needs, we kind of start pulling certain moves here. I think that survival drive is a lot easier for people to understand and relate to. Kind of like, yeah, of course, like I I would want to protect myself. That's the most basic human instinct. But do people push back on that like interdependence? Like we have a desire to attach that is as strong or is it as strong? She was like emphatically nodding her head yes. over here. <laughs> My eyebrow is like 
very aggressive right now. Yeah, I think there's a lot of pushback for that because of cultural conditioning, especially in America, this drive to be really independent and, you know, self-serving and, you know, strong and a go-getter and all these things. And it really, a lot of the teachings that we've all experienced, whether, you know, obviously or subliminally, uh, have impacted our I guess, need in that area, right? So it's like this sense of like, yeah, do we really need a relationship? Like, I don't need it. I want it. And I think that is counter indicated to what Lauren just said, right? That's not accurate. That actually that is a survival strategy for all of us Mm -hmm. to connect, right? And so when we think about this attachment system, the threat is not a bear or a gun or, you know, that my physical body is going to be harmed. It's that my connection, I'm going to lose the connection with somebody that I, that matters to me. I do think that message is really prevalent right now that to not need anybody in any regard is a good thing. If you say like, I don't need anybody, like that's a, a good thing, but you'd probably say, no, that's not a good thing. It's not a good thing. It's a, It goes against the actual drive that is wanting us to connect. And it's actually something that we probably learn, again, as a way to protect ourselves individually, right? If I don't need this thing, then I don't have to feel the pain or grief associated with the loss of the relationship. So I kind of like almost condition myself out of that need that is very natural for all of us as humans. And I think that it is hard sometimes for us to wrap our minds around, especially in this Western culture, like you said, Kayla, because there is a high degree to to which somebody can operate in a really counterdependent way in the sense of like, well, I just am a lone wolf and I am financially independent and I meet all of my own needs and I really don't need anybody. And I would still argue to that, like, well, if you go to the grocery store and get food that somebody else has, you know, harvested and processed and shipped there and you've got a cashier ringing you up and you have to go to the doctor when you're sick and you have like, we do need other people. There is just no getting around that. And we can minimize the vulnerability of like, well, I only go to people who I pay to help me with things, but like, we're still a social species. You still need other people. You sound like such a capitalist right now. Do I? (laughs) (laughs) That's interesting. (laughs) So even though we're talking a little bit more about the withdrawer today, I think we kind of need to define both of these terms. And I just want to emphasize how important I think all of this is I would say like, if you were going to listen to two podcasts on how to improve your relationship, it would be this one. And then the next one that we are going to do, I don't really know how people navigate conflict or have that much success in their relationship without knowing this language and without having this information. And so I almost guarantee, I'm always afraid to deal in absolutes. (laughs) That As you side eyes me over here. As I'm always checking I, I, the absolutes. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't like absolutes either, but you re- you really don't like them. <laughs> this is true. I think every relationship has one of these. I think every relationship has a pursuer and a withdrawer. Yeah, I think at least they start out that way. And we'll talk about the kind of the nuancey things that can happen over time. But yeah, I mean, and, and part of that is because of our energy, right? We attract, you know, the opposite energy. And that is a piece when we're thinking about how to define the difference between a pursuer and withdrawer is the the energy that they bring when there is disconnection in the relationship. So Kayla, can you just really explicitly for us give a little bit of a definition for each of these? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the things that I'm usually looking at when I'm trying to categorize someone as a pursuer or withdrawer 
are a couple things, right? So one is their protective strategies. When there is disconnection in the relationship, are they more likely to to respond with things that are in like categories of, you know, criticism or protest or, you know, more high energy trying to get the relationship like back online type of things. So who's that? That's the pursuer. Thanks, Coulter. Um, <laughs> and you're talking kind of about that like fight impulse that we right, all have, right? Exactly. And bringing energy to try to move toward a goal or fix or resolve. Yes. Or and it's like this pressure that the pursuer will feel to like do it now, you know, because the conflict or the disconnection that feels really threatening. It feels uncomfortable and it feels scary that this is going to, you know, impact the relationship in some way. So they're going to move towards wanting to get it done, get it through do it right now mm-hmm. and we hear that with Paige in the story like right. she's trying to create connection in some way she like launches into a tirade about something like how she wants to get her needs met mm-hmm. keeping a, like a really close pulse on the relationship like okay what's he doing like mm-hmm. is he well we haven't heard from her side but you can kind of tell that she's doing that she's like reading into all of his signals mm-hmm. yeah she's hyper vigilant she's really paying attention to Um, anything that might feel disconnecting. And then she wants to go toward that, right? So she's going toward the disconnection. And the intention usually there is to either get her need met or resolve the relational conflict because they, she knows probably that if it, it goes too long, that's going to be bad for the relationship. That's more likely that the relationship is going to end if we don't, you know, get some sort of resolution Mm -hmm. on the flip side of that. The withdrawer, William, he might use strategies more like to remove himself from conflict because it doesn't work, right? So some of those strategies would look like shutting down, which is kind of more of a freeze response, walking away from the conflict, which is more of like a flee response, distraction, things like that. Well, and you can tell in the story he's trying to avoid the conflict. He's like, mm-hmm. I don't want to go, but exactly. I don't want to say that. And so I'm just mm-hmm. going to say that I do want to go. Yeah, right. he even goes into like appeasing a little exactly. bit. yep. Exactly. Yeah. So it's trying to get, move away from the conflict. And that's the important differentiation there. A lot of times the pursuer can feel that the withdrawer is um, trying to move away from them, but really they're trying to move away from the disconnection or the conflict that's occurring between them. Mm-hmm. So the strategies is one way that I'm trying to you know, differentiate pursuers and withdrawers. I'm also interested in the connection to emotion as far as is there awareness of what I feel and what I'm thinking? Is it really like disorganized and um, intense and more sort of like just like all over the place, which would be more of like the pursuer's mentality most of the time? Or is it a little bit more disconnected from emotion? I'm not quite sure what I'm feeling or I don't know how to articulate that. So that relationship to their emotion is something this kind of like the next place that I go. I want to just kind of bust a myth right off the bat when we're talking about withdrawers because I think one of the things that I hear come up in a lot of different contexts is like, oh, so pursuers just obviously really want connection and care about connection and withdrawers are just like really selfish Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. they don't care about the connection and they just want to feel okay themselves. And so I want to just kind of put that out there. That's because the pursuer is the one that's talking the most in therapy. <laughs> uh-huh. And the yeah, it is usually the pursuer, right? Who's like, obviously I'm right. And, you know, spoiler alert, both parties think that they're right. We had a whole episode on that being right versus being relational. 
So, yeah, I was even kind of hearing you, Kayla, describe, like, both people are actually in some way trying to protect the connection. It's not that the withdrawer is just coming from this selfish place of, like, I don't care about the connection. Can you highlight a little bit more? That's a total game changer for pursuers to recognize my partner's not trying to withdraw from me. They're not trying to disconnect Mm -hmm. from me. They are actually trying to protect the connection in the way that we know how. Yes. Yeah. Right. If you're a pursuer out there, I guarantee that that is probably something that's going to take you some time to digest. Yeah, it's going to be hard to believe that because Lauren, you had just mentioned it is, it does appear, I would say, to be more selfish and self serving and you want to get away from me. But really, when we check out the third thing that I'm looking for, which is what is, what's the cognitions that are going along with the emotion, right? What are, what's my mind doing? What's the narrative upstairs? A lot of the withdrawers narrative um, is more self blame, right? I, I can't do this. This is all my fault. I'm never going to get this right. I'm never and good enough. It's, I'm never good it's enough. never good enough for you. Exactly, mm-hmm. right? She always wants to fight. Uh-huh. That was from the story. Yeah, mm-hmm. right? And it's a lot of like, it, I don't know how to manage this. And so it can look like I'm avoiding you, but ultimately it's because of the way that I'm interpreting the situation that I'm sort of backing off and using these strategies to get us out of the conflict that I know doesn't work. Exactly. So the reason that we decided to talk about the withdrawer first is because it does seem like the pursuer is often the one kind of like driving some more information and kind of like wanting to be understood a little bit more. Also, as I came up with the story, you know, obviously the pursuer with withdrawer can be a male or female, yeah. or they can both be male or both be female, mm-hmm. whatever. I do think that we tend to see more males as withdrawers. I will say that I deviate from that. I'm a pursuer in my relationship and my wife is withdrawer, but we decided to start with the withdrawers. And so Kayla, can you bring us in a little bit into kind of like the origins of the withdrawer? Like how is a withdrawer made? Where are they grown? Gosh, there's so many answers to this. So I do want to give as many examples as we can because I think it is really easiest for us to want to generalize this. And it is really unique to what each of our backgrounds look like and uh, family of origin and, and the rules in the family of origin. So because you just mentioned, and Coulter, I just want to double down on what you just said about the fact that withdrawers maybe are more commonly male, but that is not the rule. And But the reason that it is more common is a lot of our cultural conditioning, right? Especially as men, there is just a, a complete injustice done, or at least there has been, to our males as far as um, what's been taught with regard to their ability to connect and express emotion. Yeah. Especially like- vulnerable emotion. Yeah, I see all these reels on Instagram and everything that are about like, oh, like she just wants to talk all the time and you just kind of want to be left alone. And like, I think of that as like, that's just the pursuer withdrawer relationship because in my relationship, it is the opposite. She's the ones that's like, can you shut up? Like, I don't want to talk about all these like deep emotions. I'm like, no, I want to know what everybody is feeling. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah, and I mean, this comes from a, a decent place, I would say. I'm not good at dates, but I'm just going to tell you back in the time when we were in war in our country. I don't know if either of you actually know when that was. Yeah, (laughs) that's very specific. (laughs) 
<laughs> you, were you AP history? <laughs> when we were in a war. Yeah. Civil war. There's a lot of wars. <laughs> like, is this the Civil War, Revolutionary War, World War One, Two, Don't Vietnam, know. Korea? Don't okay. Don't know. Don't care. But the important thing, the important piece is we were in wars. And at that time, you know, we we wanted to encourage, especially our men, to go serve and be in the front line. And so a lot of the messaging had to be to remove those emotions from that, you know, specific job or duty, right? Because if you're going into war and you have a lot of compassion or you have a lot of fear, that may not suit you well, right? And so we're trying to essentially encourage our men to be strong and to disassociate from their emotions, disconnect from them so that they can go do something really crazy, like putting themselves in front of, you know, a, a mortal really, danger. Yes, exactly. Something very dangerous. And so a lot of the problem is, though, is that a lot of those teachings just continued to get passed down, you know, over time. And so there still is a a heavy emphasis on being strong and being a man and don't be a baby and pull yourself up by your bootstraps and all of this conditioning that really does. It matters because it impacts us and it, it again, it convinces us to disconnect from emotions and not really be able to, to identify what we feel. And I think that taking it back to the family of origin piece where you said it's really unique to each person, and this is where we see this being true for males and females, is that if we've grown up in an environment where it didn't serve us or it didn't suit us to be really connected to vulnerable emotion, right? If I was connected to like, wow, I feel really scared and helpless, or I feel really sad. And if I'm being met with messaging, like, I'll give you something to cry about, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, like, stop being such a baby. baby. Uh Exactly. Like that, you know, you're being so weak. Like, whether those messages are overt or just subliminal, um, we pick up on those really quickly. And so we learn if it's not met relationally with connection to be connected to our vulnerable emotions, or if that's never modeled in our environment, then we learn to disconnect from those. Right. Exactly. And, you know, that can come from even really, you know, well-meaning places. Like I had maybe just a single parent and they had to work a lot to provide for our family. And so therefore they just weren't physically present. Right. The resources Uh, just weren't there. Exactly. So then if I'm not, if that's not being modeled for me as far as like what I'm feeling and how to deal with emotion, then that just becomes a void, right? It becomes an area where we don't develop that ability to name what we feel and to allow ourselves to express what we feel. And that emotion can feel so overwhelming that again, we learn to disconnect from that. So it can come from modeling as far as, you know, what I saw my parents do and so maybe or not do, right? So maybe they dealt with their emotions by withdrawing or or humor or compartmentalizing and therefore that's also what I do with mine because I saw that modeled for me. And I think of that even as like a, a skill, right, that you're describing we might not learn. It's just kind of like if I was never taught how to read and write growing up, coming into adulthood, I would be really avoidant of contexts where I'm being asked to read and write, you know? I'd be like, well, I don't like texting. I don't like yeah. email. Like if you want to talk to me, you have to talk to me on the phone, you know, because it feels really bad internally to be like, there's this thing that I see other people around me know how to do and they're wanting me to engage in this way and I don't know how. And it would take an exorbitant amount of energy as an adult to learn how versus when we're kids and we're all just kind of learning these things organically. On the flip side of that, if I come from a family that doesn't 
do emotions, doesn't talk about them, doesn't feel them, et cetera. And then I'm in a relationship with a partner or a friend or a coworker who does have a lot of emotion that feels really intense. I'm going to look at that as very threatening because I don't feel that. I don't know how to manage that. And so that feels really foreign to me, right? So that can be another place where it's like, yeah, maybe I haven't learned how to deal with this and I'm going to avoid that because that feels really strange and foreign and scary for me. This also is where I like to tie the energy management piece in because, again, when I think about doing something that's overwhelming for me or something that just takes a lot of energy, I think, Coulter, you and I were talking one time about basketball, right? Like, I, for those who don't know me, I'm not a sports person. I have no hand-eye coordination. I'm not interested in sports. It's like the idea of having to, like, get on a basketball court and play even the simplest of like try to get this ball in the hoop is like I don't want to do that because I know I'm not going to be good at it. I know that it's going to take forever. And I think about this like if Coulter is who does like basketball and if he was like, oh, I'll show you how to do it. Like get on the court with me and I'll give you some pointers. And like it would still be really hard for me to muster the energy to be like, okay, I'm going to go try to learn this skill that I've never practiced and that doesn't interest me a whole lot. And that would be really hard. And so there's days where I have more energy to work with that I would be like, okay, like I can kind of get in game mode and I'm ready to do this. And I probably have a threshold of like 30 minutes or an hour or something where I can practice this for. But on low energy days, I'd be like, ugh, I don't want to. Yeah. I also actually have some skills that I'm not as good at also. Wow. Um, What? Yeah. (laughs) It's not just me. Mm -hmm. One of mine that I think of, because this came out this morning, is uh, my son wanted me to do a puzzle with him. He's three, and so there's like, you know, 20 pieces in the puzzle. I'm colorblind, and so I hate puzzles. Even the 20-piece puzzle is hard for me. It's really hard to do puzzles when you are colorblind. Mm. I've never thought about that, but that totally tracks. Yeah. Yeah, it's my burden. <laughs> but, you know, I, I remember like being on a trip with friends years ago for New Year's and it was like snowy and everyone's like, oh, we found this like thousand piece puzzle. We should do this puzzle. And they were all doing it together and I hated it. I'm like, stop doing the puzzle. They're like, well, help. I'm like, I can't help. I can't do anything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And just that that exasperation, that frustration that comes with like, this is not a way that I can experience connection. And even when everybody else is like, but it's so connecting. If you just learn how to do it, it feels so good. Like it is a tall order when it takes a lot of energy for us to show up in that way. Yeah. Yeah. And if you're, you know, that it just reminds me of this quote that we often say, um, say or use in attachment and EFT work, which is if your body hasn't been comforted as a child, it's so much harder to learn how to comfort yourself when you're experiencing emotions and therefore very, very hard to learn how to comfort somebody else when they're experiencing emotion. It's without the resources and demonstration being modeled for us of how to do this, it just doesn't happen, right? And so that is something that has to be intentionally focused on, you know, from the withdrawer's seat because a lot of times it just wasn't innately there. That's interesting because I feel like sometimes withdrawers are better at like sitting in emotion with you because they're not necessarily trying to fix it in quite the same way. Is that not true? I have the exact opposite experience that that is ex- that's typically what the withdrawer pulls the most is trying again that avoidance strategy of like I don't know how to feel this this is wrong and so I want to fix it I want to get out of it I want to solve it. What do mm-hmm. you think Lauren? 
I think it probably could go either way. When I think of maybe a withdrawer where they can bring this strength of because I don't maybe absorb your emotion as easily, I can kind of stay in this logic-based place. And if I know that your need is just for me to sit with it, I can then just like sit with it without kind of taking that in and being like, oh, now it feels distressing in my body and I have to respond to it. But I think they do have to know that that's the need for you is to just sort of sit there and hold the space for it. I would say my partner has learned that and is actually quite good at that. If I bring like, hey, I'm really struggling with this feeling, he's pretty good at being like, yeah, that totally makes sense. Or like, wow, I can understand that. And I think that's a learned skill for him. I think what I'm hearing you say, Kayla, and this is also something I see a lot, especially in couples work with our withdrawers, is that sometimes if they don't know, like, that's the skill I can use is to just hold space here for it. It can feel like this threat of, oh, you want me to feel this thing that you're feeling. And I don't know how to do that in my system. My strategy is make that go away as quickly as possible. So if I were to start feeling that thing, here's how I would fix it. Here's mm-hmm. how I would logic exactly. my way out of it. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Because again, it's it's uncomfortable if we don't if we don't have the experience of being able to feel the emotion and then letting it pass it, because we that's been modeled for us and we have the tools to um, regulate that. Uh, and again, I think that it depends on what like what stage of healing you're in as a withdrawer. How much awareness do you have of you know what has happened as a child and what's influenced your protective strategy? And how much work have you done on being able to identify emotions and recognize your strategies and learn to regulate some of that? So it's really hard when we when we talk about pursuers and withdrawers to use blanket statements, though we're trying really hard to do that. Um, it's hard because it's so dependent on where you are in your healing process as far as like what this will look like. I want to just say too, for any withdrawers listening, or I guess even partners of withdrawers, the goal with therapy work or just personal growth and development for a withdrawer is not to make them a pursuer. Right. Like it's not to get them to this place where all of a sudden now they do have this much larger capacity and bandwidth for being in touch with all of their emotions and like they're going to become this much more emotional person. Like that's really not the goal to make you different. You know, like you get to actually keep your own nervous system and temperament and personality. And same as when we're talking about pursuers, we are trying to expand some capacity, some tolerance to know how to be present with hard things. But I think a lot of times maybe pursuers think like, oh, I just need my withdrawer to learn to be like me. Like you need to go learn how to feel your emotions in the way that I do. And then we're both going to be the same. And that's not the goal here. Mm -mm. No. It's to it's the individuation thing that we've talked about on previous podcasts. It's to learn and understand that there's a difference here and that both sides of this make sense as it pertains to, you know, the threat to connection and to learn it and to understand it. And then what we each individually need to be able to come back to connection is really what we're trying to work towards. And I, I'm wondering even, because I think all three of us have identified that we're pursuers in our own relationships, but if we could each maybe name something we really appreciate about being in relationship with a withdrawer. Because even as we were just talking about that piece, I was thinking like, in crisis, my withdrawer partner is so stabilizing for me. Like, And I'm saying in crisis, like, you know, if the car breaks down while we're driving, you know, and I have a tendency to immediately go into panic and my partner 
is able to stay a lot more level-headed in times like that or even like relational things that come up where I'm like maybe something that's not a conflict directly between the two of us but where I start to panic or I start to go into like, oh my gosh, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? And he just has much more of a capacity to be like, we're going to get through this and we're going to figure this out and it's going to be okay. And like that's really stabilizing for me in times that the conflict's not directly between the two of us. I told my withdrawer partner yesterday something that I really appreciate about her. We were talking about this before we started the podcast, the let them theory, the just like, oh, just let them do that is like, I really struggle with that. I really like to control mm-hmm. people and tell people what to do. <laughs> and like, they should be asking. Yeah, like this is what they're doing and they need to stop. And my wife is really good at just like, mm, like just let them. Like yeah. it's fine. It's I would fine. Say my that partner's doesn't... great at that too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that um, the thing that I have learned the most from Dustin, um, Dustin, you're welcome, is <laughs> <laughs> just like the the management of energy, you know, because his energy is so different than mine. I, I am a person that just go, 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 goes to the point that I have an eye twitch for days and days on end at all times <laughs> because I just want to always um, use up every second of my day, of my week, of my weekend. And I you know, I'm constantly looking for ways that we can connect to friends that we haven't seen and and just jam pack so much stuff. And what, what I realize happens when I push him to those limits, his body starts to shut down. And so then I'll get a partner who is not communicating and is, you know, kind of like what you described with um, William, where he's not talking on the hike, right? It's, I now bring Dustin to all these social events and he's like, um, not speaking. And I'm like, what the hell's wrong with you? Why aren't you talking? And he's like, Kayla, you've drugged me to like 19 things this week, you know? Um, So the lesson there for me is like, sometimes we have to really choose that and prioritize the things that our energy should go towards and it shouldn't go towards every damn thing. Yeah, even as you're saying that, I think that's also something I appreciate about my partner too, where it's like we could have a weekend day where in my mind, it's so default to be like, okay, we have this day where we're both off work. Let's do all of these chores and change the air filters and run these errands. And he so naturally can be like, let's do a family movie day. You know, something that's still actually connecting. And it's really hard for me to be like, oh, maybe there is value sometimes in just resting together. And and there really is when I can lean into that and receive it kind of as a gift. And obviously we need balance between the two energies, but like it is really a gift to me sometimes to just stop and be like, Lauren, you need to prioritize some rest and self-care today. I've definitely also learned how to rest from my partner is I like, I love weekends at home now. And I always want to be the one that's like, we've got dinner plans Friday and Saturday night. And And that's not really the reality of life now, but I really just enjoy weekends at home. I also just want to say, you know, poor Dustin, Kayla, (laughs) the thing you appreciate about him is like when I push him over the edge, his body (laughs) shuts down and then I know, oh, I should probably take a break too. So (laughs) once I run him to empty, I recognize I'm getting close to empty. We should stop. Mm. Gosh, oh, that poor guy. <laughs> what a joy it is to be in a relationship with me. Um, <laughs> no, I I think that um, that it really has taught me not to work so much, you know, on the weekends and stuff, which I know benefits you a lot, Coulter, for me to work less. Um, <laughs> but that is yes. Well, but it's it's funny you saying that. So and so for people who don't know, I am Kayla's boss, um, but. No, I want I want you energized. Like I want you 
to be happy and balanced and have margin in your life. So it is good for me for you to be rested. Thanks again, Dustin, for helping Coulter. <laughs> <laughs> and that that really highlights just the interdependence, right, of this energy management in the relationship is that when we can bring more balance, it actually does benefit both ways, right? Because it, thinking back to like a partnership, so if I am go, go, go all the time and I'm not prioritizing my own needs for rest and self-care, I'm also going to be crankier and more irritable and more stressed, which is not going to feel great in between us in the relationship. And so if I can learn to kind of take that gift of slowing down, then I am going to have more energy. So the time that we do spend together, it is going to feel more intentional. I am going to have more patience and more bandwidth to experience some of that compassion for an energy that feels different. So it's going to feel good both ways. And we'll talk about this on the flip side too next episode with, you know, the management on the other side when we're trying to appreciate our pursuers. Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering what are some of the things that maybe we hear withdrawers say frequently in our offices? And then speaking of withdrawers being in the offices, I would love to just chat a little bit about like what are some of the things that withdrawers can take away as areas of practice and things to work on? I think I'm trying to think of what's the most common thing that I hear. I'll just circle us back to the thing that we started with that a lot of my pursuers that are listening are going to find it hard to believe, which is the real the focus on self-blame, right? It's all my fault. I'm going to mess this up. I'm not going to be able to get it right. I'm not going to be able to say it right. And ultimately kind of linking that back to this feeling of inadequacy, you know, low self-worth. And so it's really this mentality of just like, I'm going to screw it up. I can't get it right. Mm-hmm. So I don't even want to try, right? The tr- the risk of trying is that it's not going to work and I'm going to have to tolerate the discomfort of my partner being upset with me or whatever. It all ultimately then is going to boil down to it's all my fault. Yeah. It kind of goes back to the analogies of like playing basketball or doing the puzzle. It's like, I don't want to do it. It's like, why? Just do it. Just try. It's like, no, I you know, I'm not, good I, at I'm it. not good at it or I don't have the resources mm-hmm. to be able to do it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I've heard this language used too from, from multiple withdrawers of like feeling exposed in that, that like, I, I don't like feeling exposed that there's something that I'm not good at or that I don't know how to do. And so sometimes that can even bring up more of an anger energy. I think, you know, we've talked about withdrawers from kind of this like flight standpoint of like d- distract, avoid, with like actually withdraw or shut down. Um, and sometimes we can see the snap that comes up for withdrawers of like expressing anger and frustration of like you're being so invasive or no, I'm not that way. Like we can get really defensive and that still tends to be around protecting that feeling of being exposed, that there's something that doesn't feel good for me and I don't know how to manage that or express that in a more productive way. Yeah. And the defense sometimes can also come from a place of you don't understand me, right? Like this, like I'm just misunderstood here and which is such a catch 22 because of course you're not understood if you're not expressing yourself, but it's like that whole like chicken before the egg or like this never ending cycle of just like, I'm not going to share this because I'm not going to get it right. And then my partner doesn't understand me and that doesn't feel good. And so now I'm not feeling understood or, you know, like what, what's the point, right? It's just like this very, and and that kind of brings me the feeling of overwhelm. It's just like all these things just you know, constantly on me and I feel all this pressure. So I guess that's another piece of this. Like the defense sometimes comes from a place or the snap comes from a place of just like, 
ah, like I'm exploding almost with all of the emotions that are kind of building underneath there. So one of the places that the withdrawer is coming from is this fearing that they are going to lose their independence. That like maybe I need this time to myself and I'm not going to get it if I don't protect it. And I wonder if we could just kind of speak about that a little bit. Yeah, I I actually think about something I learned from a withdrawer who kind of gave this language to it feels like I have to manage my own needs and my own independence all the time. And so it's like really high risk actually to give some of my energy to meeting a partner's needs or to meeting somebody else's needs if that's not also serving one of my needs. And so we can see this protection around independence, around like I want to conserve my energy to make sure that my needs are getting met, that my preferences, my wants, that I'm not having to self-sacrifice because I'm so used to funneling all of my energy into having to take care of myself. So that can feel really threatening or we can start to feel really like trapped or deprived even when we think about giving some of our energy to meet relational needs that feel counter to our independent needs. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and again, just to protect the withdrawer here, because I'm sure a pursuer can listen to that and think, think, well, they're so selfish, right? That's not very relational to need your own things. And, you know, what about the relationship? Actually, we- We're not going for codependence. We're going for interdependence. That's right. Yes, exactly. Right. And again, go back and listen to right versus relationship because we'll address a lot of that in there. But just to support the withdrawal, if you are, you know, if you were raised in a family where you had to meet a lot of your own needs, then you're really good at that. And so that, again, is the strength of the withdrawer, right? They're good at being able to prioritize their needs and and, and prioritize their energy. And like William, right, they know that they don't want to go on a hike because that's not something that's going to meet their needs. And so that is something that there's conditioning involved in there, but that also is a strength that the pursuer probably needs to start to learn from. Yeah, I was just thinking you're going to hear us talk about that on the flip side in the next episode. Because again, going back to that myth that we hear naturally kind of comes up for pursuers of like, oh, it's better to be a pursuer because pursuers are selfless and altruistic and just want the connection. And it's like, no, there's a weakness on both sides, right? Where the withdrawers have a weakness in being maybe more in touch with their vulnerable emotions or how to express what they're feeling and needing and how to kind of balance energy from a self-sacrificial standpoint, there also is a weakness for pursuers of some of the conditioning around not having learned how to prioritize the self. So I love that we're highlighting that strength actually of the withdrawer. Yeah. I feel like there almost needs to be a new name for the pursuer because if you say like, you know, you're the withdrawer, you withdraw from the relationship and you pursue the relationship. It's like, oh yeah, I got the good one, but it, it should almost be more like the criticizer or something like that. Yeah. And, and also like on the flip side, the withdrawer is just one move. It's like they, they do a lot of different kinds of things. And ultimately we're like, what are we doing with the conflict and the disconnection is mm-hmm. what the idea is there. Mm-hmm. So let's move a little bit into some takeaways, kind of like what people can do. I'd, I'd love to give some examples of what a withdrawer can do. Maybe also even um, how you can love your withdrawer partner. Mm-hmm. And so one thing that I think the withdrawer can do is communicate a little bit more. I'll give the example of our story with William and Paige. So, you know, William hears his wife wants to go on a hike. He doesn't want to disappoint her. He 
also feels like he's very stressed and the idea of even making plans right now is difficult for him. But saying that is going to be upsetting in some regard. He remembers the last hike that that didn't go as well. And so he feels like he can't really do any of that. So he just opts for saying, sure, I will go. Mm -hmm. And I would say the thing that the withdrawer can do is just explain all of that, like say all of those things, being able to hold both of those things at the same time. You want to go on a hike. That sounds really fun. I want to connect with you. I also am feeling very kind of out of gas right now. And I know it's simple. I know it's silly. Like, do I want to go on a hike this weekend? I can't even think about this weekend. I can't even answer that question. And so like being able to communicate all of that at the same time. It makes me think of a practice that I use in group therapy all the time of this idea of trying to make the implicit explicit. So this idea of checking in implicitly, what is it that I'm feeling or needing that if you were just looking at me in the room, you wouldn't know. You might see on the surface something that looks withdrawn or irritable. Like generally we can tell, you know, in a group setting, if somebody comes in and they're not making eye contact and their arms are crossed over their body and they're not engaging conversationally, everybody else is going to start making up guesses about, do they not want to be here? Do they not agree with something that somebody else is saying? And so this practice of just make it explicit, it's always okay to show up authentically. Um, if what it's like to be you is I'm coming into the room, managing a lot of other stressful things in life and I'm kind of low energy. And so I just want to make it explicit that when you see me a little bit more disengaged, it's because I have all this other stuff going on. Yeah. You came into this room today with like a little bit of an energy that I was even kind of curious. I'm like, oh, is Lauren mad at me? Like, is she frustrated with me about something? But then, you know, just really quickly when I was like, hey, how are you doing? You were like, oh, I have a lot on my mind. You kind of explained to me what it was. And yeah. it was exactly that, like taking the implicit and making it explicit. Mm -hmm. yeah. And that is the thing that I think we can get confused about oftentimes with the withdrawer is, especially as a pursuer is like, oh, are you upset with me? Right. I'm personalizing the the reaction I see from you or the lack thereof. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's <laughs> someone, they, their partner gets upset or their friend gets upset. They're like, this is about me. I yes. did something. Are you mad at me? Are you mad right. at me? Yeah. Yes. Right. <laughs> and you, you shouldn't be mad at me. I'm great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I think it's like to tie into what you said, Coulter, it's, it is really important relationally for us to be able to advocate for those things that we need and to create boundaries for the things that we know that we're unable to do based on our own individual needs and experiences. And so I agree. I think the communication piece is is really important to start to work on. And, and of course, we know that that's really hard because there's a lot of fears around that area. And I'm thinking about even, culture what you said of like how we can love our withdrawers well. If our withdrawers are going to do this practice of making something explicit, I just want to name the reason that they don't automatically do that is because they're probably assuming that if I do tell you I'm just low on energy, that you're going to try mm -hmm. to fix that for me, right? You're going to try to give me a reason why I won't be low on energy on Saturday or I shouldn't be. You want and to so, accept it. Yeah, we want to yeah. accept it and actually like let them really practice working out this muscle by teaching them that, hey, when you share this with me, I care. And I'm going to practice my own regulation of slowing down and not just jumping to try to fix it for you, yes. but showing you that this matters to me, that you're sharing this. I always think about that. It's just like continuing to make it safe for yes. your partner to share. Yes. So like they're yes. taking the risk and they're going to share. And now you have an opportunity. Do I want to punish them for this? Yes. Or do I want to show them that this was safe to do? And that can be hard <clears throat> because you might be disappointed yes. by their answer. Totally. You know, Paige might think like, oh, we never get to go on a hike. Like, I, you know, that's something I really 
want to do. And you have to kind of push that aside a little bit to be able to say like, oh, wow, like really thank you for telling me Mm -hmm. about that. That's where Dr. Becky's two things can be true. It really comes in handy, right? It's it's for both sides, right? It's for the pursuer to be able to accept what it's like to be the withdrawer, that their energy is low, and to voice their disappointment. And then the next point that I have for my withdrawers is to be able to voice the thing that I need and then also be able to tolerate my partner's disappointment. If they express that they're disappointed, that doesn't mean that I shouldn't still express the need that I have and prioritize the need. Yeah. I do see that withdrawers can have a hard time with that too, that the pursuer is like, okay, like I accept that, but I am disappointed. Correct. And the withdrawers yep. like, well, I don't want you to be disappointed. Never mind. Like, n- yeah, never mind. Like I don't want to share anymore because like they got disappointed in me. It's like, guess what? They're allowed to be yes. disappointed in let you. Them. Let, let them. Let them feel their disappointment. <laughs> let them. Let yes. them be disappointed. Yes. yes. And also, I think one thing that comes up for both sides is the thinking that things are always going to stay this way. And mm-hmm. so like, hey, do you want to go on a hike? Like, mm, no, I don't really feel like I can make that decision right now. Like, well, we never get to go on hikes. We never get to do anything. Mm-hmm. They might come back to you a day or two later or come Saturday morning and like, have gotten a little bit more energy and you're like, hey, actually that does sound kind of fun. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Emotions are temporary if we let them be, right? If we practice them, we can come out of them. And so it doesn't have to be so black and white that it's always going to be this way. And that's, for, like you said, Goldger, that's for both sides to really be able to start to grasp and embrace. Mm-hmm. The last thing that I would add just around needs in the relationship is actually looking for little opportunities both ways. Where's a little opportunity where I can let my partner meet my needs? So if I am a withdrawer and I can give my partner a chance to like, hey, I could really just use a hug right now, or I could really use some extra downtime. I know that we have these plans coming up and I need a little bit more time to rest. Can you help me with this? Like that feels so good to let our partner meet a need. And conversely, to practice looking for little ways that I can meet the need of my partner, right? If I'm not used to that because I'm used to conserving all of my own energy, can I find little ways that don't feel so high stakes to be like, oh, can I get you a glass of water? Can I do this thing that maybe does feel manageable for me so that we're practicing some of that new muscle of um, interdependence, letting each other meet each other's needs. Mm -hmm. Excellent points. Yeah. All right. I hope that was helpful information for you. And I hope you find yourself actually wanting a little bit more because we really only gave you 50% of this. There's a whole nother side about pursuers, which we are going to be back with next week. And if you are a withdrawer out there, I hope that you are feeling seen by this episode. If you are a pursuer, do not use it as an opportunity to send this to your withdrawer partner so that they can improve in some sort of way. I hope that you are using it as an opportunity to see them and to understand them a little bit better. So withdrawers, thank you for going slow and helping us to understand when we need to take some rest. If you've got a partner like Kayla and they are running you into the ground all the time, I'm very sorry. As a pursuer, we are working on those things. And in fact, we are going to be working on them next week in our episode about pursuers. Until next time.